0: Our sermon text for this Lord's Day is Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, as we prepare for the ordination of our church's fourth deacon. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected and to the pre-ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Unfortunately, the ordination of a deacon fails to elicit much excitement these days. Many churches have opted to dispense with the the office of deacon altogether or try as you might, you might struggle going to a church to figure out who in the world their deacons are if they in fact do have deacons. Very few people care about this sacred office. I think one of the reasons that so many don't care about the office of deacon or diaconate, which refers to the team of deacons, is that our culture is obsessed with power, always asking the question, who is in charge? And since deacons don't oversee the whole church like the elders do, and since deacons don't stand up front and lead services like ministers, we then assume that they are somehow less important. We are obsessed with authority and power in our day. The marginalization of the diaconate can be demonstrated by the scarcity of books on this holy office. Try as you might, hop on Amazon, you're not going to find a whole lot of titles devoted to the office of deacon explaining what it is, its history, and their calling. You can find all sorts of crazy Christian books out there. But on something the Bible actually teaches, eh, not so exciting. Not going to sell so many copies. Yet, what we see here in Acts chapter 6 is something that's very encouraging, very exciting. It might not pop up on Facebook in terms of best books I've read in 2023, But you see a title here, you see a story here that should be on the bestseller list. You have an event here that for some reason does not inspire church growth experts. But what we see here in our text is something that actually brought about true growth within the Christian church. The ordination of deacons is of great significance. The ministry of mercy is potent. It is powerful in the heavenly places. And Luke, the author of Acts, the same guy who authored the gospel named after him, he is sure to tell us here that the creation of this office is then linked with the spread of the gospel and the growth of of the Christian church. It pays immediate dividends. So today, we consider a momentous event that shaped the apostolic church, the beginning of the diaconate, the body of deacons, an event that shapes us today. Corresponding to those seven men, we have seven brief lessons. As you think about Christ creating the office of deacon and his design for deacons. First, Jesus created this office. If you still have your Bible open, I want you to turn to the very first verse in the entire book of Acts. This is key, and many people overlook it. Luke makes mention there of his first book, that Gospel accounts, and he says there in verse 1 that that first book records what Jesus began to do and teach. The implication is that this second volume pertains to what Jesus continued to do and teach, whereas the first volume was on earth the second volume is what he continued to do after he ascended to heaven. This book is called The Acts of the Apostles because it is through the apostles especially that Jesus was continuing to do His work. Now, this is why the apostles had to wait in Jerusalem until the day of Pentecost. They needed to wait to conduct their mission until Jesus poured out from heaven the Holy Spirit at Pentecost because it was going to be through the Holy Spirit that Christ would then empower the apostles to be His hands and His feet continuing to do and continuing to teach. The Spirit would overcome the distance. In chapter 2, verse 43, you can then note that many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Note the passive voice there. They were being done through them. Who was the active party? The implication is clear. Jesus was performing these through the apostles by the Holy Spirit. This is the continued work of Jesus. As you proceed in the book of Acts, you will then see that the apostles were then doing works in the name of Jesus. For example, in chapter 3, they speak to a lame man and say, In the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. The apostles were not getting the credit. Who was getting the credit? Jesus. He was continuing to work. And so therefore, when we come to our text today, chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, we need to see that Jesus is at work through the apostles, establishing the sacred office of deacon. Now, in chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, the word deacon is not present. However, two related Greek terms are present in verse 1 and in verse 2. The word deacon in Greek is diaconos. Verse 1, you have diakonia. Verse 2, the verb diakono. This idea of service, it corresponds with the name deacon, the office. And from the earliest of times, the church has recognized this to be the start of the diaconates. Whether you turn to Irenaeus or to the venerable Bede, it was just assumed this is the beginning of the office of deacon, Acts chapter 6. The word doesn't need to be there. After all, these verses clarify then why it is that later in the New Testament we begin to see this office mentioned. So for example, in 1 Timothy 3, Paul just speaks about the office of deacon. Where did that come from? Or in Philippians 1, Paul speaks about overseers and deacons. Again, where did that come from? It does not exist in the Old Testament. It had to have a beginning point here in Acts 6. You have the beginning points. You did not need this for the office of elder. That exists in the Old Testament. You did not need this for the office of minister of the word. There are plenty of those in the Old Testament. But for the office of deacon, you need to clarify the starting points. You have that here in Acts 6, verses 1-7. through Jesus created the diaconates. This is analogous to what happened at Mount Sinai. Recall Moses at Sinai. He's becoming overwhelmed with all the work that faced him. What did he do? He established elders across Israel, even a Sanhedrin of 70 as they set out from Mount Sinai. The beginning of that covenant dispensation, the beginning of the old covenants corresponded with the start of a special office, that of elder, and now the beginnings here of the New Covenant age. We find the clar- clarification that an office is being established that would then f- march forward throughout the New Covenant. The deacon is established here. Christ created it through the apostles by the spirits. Second, Jesus loves needy Christians. Throughout the Old Testament, God's concern for the poor and for the widow, for the orphan, is very clear. He calls himself the father of the fatherless, the protector of widows. He declares himself to be merciful and compassionate. Why? Because he is the one who shows that compassion toward the oppressed. The Lord shows that love in the Old Testament within institutions like the priesthood. One of their callings was to receive the financial offerings from God's people, the alms, like the every three, third year tithe, and then to dispense that to the needy in Israel. We see this love for the needy that God showed as he commanded his people not to, to harvest the edges of their fields. Why? So that the needy would have something to harvest and to eat, to care for them. He declared that he was one who aligned himself specially with those who were poor amongst Israel. That way the kings and judges would not show partiality to the rich and to the powerful. For if they opposed the poor, they were opposing God who was their defendants in the courtroom. And so now when the new covenant age is dawning, when Pentecost is beginning, it was natural then for the apostles to carry on this all-important task. They were going to care for the poor in chapters 1 through 5, the apostles begin to receive the collection of alms for the poor. They begin to dispense that to the needy in Israel. This was so important because as Jewish widows would convert to the New Covenant message out of Judaism, they would then almost certainly become estranged from the synagogue and have no access to the alms. For the poor that would be given by the priests and Levites. They needed immediate support. The apostles stepped into the vacuum. But then what happened? The task became too big. It became too onerous. The apostles were losing their focus on the preaching of the word. And as we noted in our first point, this necessitated a new office. But we must also clarify, this office exists because of Christ's underlying love for the needy, for the poor, for the broken, for the destitute. He is compassionate toward our frailty. He remembers us in our affliction in this sin-cursed world. Christ cares not only for our souls, but for our bodies. And what oftentimes happens in times of affliction, the devil tries to tempt you and me to think that our affliction means that Jesus doesn't love us. He tempts us to think that Jesus has abandoned us because of this affliction. So Jesus establishes an office to reassure you in the time of affliction, in a time of destitution and brokenness, that He actually loves you. His love for you in that time is so great, He made an office to display and manifest that for you. Of course, we experience Christ's love for us whenever a Christian comes alongside us and cares for us in a time of need. But then when it comes through a formal office, we then better understand that the help we are receiving is not because that Christian is a friend of ours or just likes us a lot. That office helps us to understand that Christ has formally appointed aid and compassion for you. He does not abandon the Christian in times of need. No, his love is ever deep for you. Our second point. Third, Jesus appoints godly men. As the foundation for the diaconate is here laid, we see seven men being ordained, not women, That is not a critique on the abilities or compassion of women, which often exceeds that of men. And deacons must, they must, mobilize Christian women and other men and promote their distinct gifts and callings within the Christian church. But we see here that the office of deacon pertains to ordination, and ordination indicates ecclesiastical authority. Scripture reserves this for men. But it's not for just any Christian man. These men must demonstrate real, true godliness. By Acts chapter 6, the church numbered in the thousands, perhaps above 10,000. So it would have been impossible for the Apostles to have known everyone that had entered into the new covenants. They summoned the entire church together, the text reads. They wanted men who were already by this time known for their godliness and for their ability. They were to be full of the Spirit and of wisdom. These men would have already commanded the respect of their fellow Christians. Later in 1 Timothy 3, Paul would expound upon these criteria of godliness. Note here that ordination did not make these men godly. There are some faulty views of the sacraments that it becomes an infusion of grace at ordination. But that's not what's happening here. These men are already godly. Ordination confers an office. It does not confer godliness. They were already full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Jesus appoints godly men. Our third point. Fourth, Jesus uses the church. He uses the church in this. There are places in Scripture where God appoints officers in dramatic fashion. We might think of the prophets of old and how they were caught up into the heavenly realm to have a vision of God, to see God manifest to them. We might think of the apostles called from being fishermen to become fishers of men. Or the apostle Paul as he was blinded dramatic events sometimes happens with those extraordinary offices, like prophet or like apostle. But the normal way that God establishes officers in his church, especially for those normal officers, is to do it through the ordinary processes of the church. And that's what we see here in Acts chapter 6. Again, the apostles could not have known everyone. So they call for something of a vote of confidence, you could say. Somehow, you 10,000 Christians need to bring forward seven. Now I can assure you there are more than seven godly men amongst 10,000 plus Christians. How do they get to that point of seven? Well, they undertook this process with wisdom, of course? They probably had various kinds of voting that happened there. And over the course of some time and some wise processes, seven came forward from the congregation as the apostles oversaw the entire process. And then they laid their hands on those seven men performing that ritual that set them apart and conferred a sacred office upon them. now, What we're tempted to think is that because these church processes were involved, that somehow God wasn't, or Christ wasn't. That's ridiculous. Because what Jesus does normally is He works through ordinary processes to bring about His plan, to bring about His will. And that is why today, on this Lord's Day, we can trust that Christ himself has been already at work through our various processes that bring forward a man, a godly man, to receive the office of deacon. This is not just a popularity vote. This is not just a reward for somebody who helps out day after day. This is Christ at work through the processes of the church. Why? Because Christ uses His church. Our fourth point. Fifth, deacons oversee benevolence. They oversee benevolence. At the end of Acts 6, verse 3, the apostles say that they will appoint these men to this duty. The SV appoints to this duty. It's a fine translation, but there's a little bit of a nuance that's not really brought out too well. This idea of be appointing to this charge is the idea to put someone in charge. That's the kind of like flavor of that term. To assign a position of authority. You might recall recently that we were in Matthew chapter 25. We'll come back to that here next week. And there was that parable of the talents. There were some servants who received talents from the master. And two of those servants did good things with the talents, right? Recall the language. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. The idea of conferring a position of authority that's being suggested by this language that we see in Matthew 25. We see here in Acts chapter 6, verse 3. Conferral of a charge, of an authority. Likewise, this authority is suggested by the act of ordination. In that event, a man is publicly consecrated to a holy task that entails leadership it's only going to be through leadership in Acts chapter 6 that seven men could possibly meet the needs arising in a church of 10,000 plus. Do you think those seven could do it all themselves? Absolutely, positively not. Ask any deacons that you ever meet, whether in our church or other churches, could you be a part of a diaconate of seven and meet the needs of 10,000 plus, they would laugh hysterically. They would say, we would need to appoint help. We would need to empower others. We would need to catalyze service. We could not do that ourselves, or we would die trying. And so what we need to understand today is that in Jerusalem, these men were being appointed to oversee a ministry of benevolence. In Jerusalem, there would have been displaced pilgrims. There were all sorts of immediate widows that needed immediate care. They needed the power to rebuke those who might show partiality to the Greek Jews or to the Hebrew Jews. They needed authority. They needed to lead. They needed to be able to rebuke And so understanding, understand this, beloved, that today, when we ordain a deacon, we are not outsourcing our service to a group of super servants. We are consecrating a man to lead us, to direct us, to govern us with respect to our communal service of one another. And so, when the deacons do give us this leadership, I exhort you, I plead with you, you must heed it and obey it. To paraphrase Hebrews 13, obey them and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over this church as those who will have to give an account. Deacons oversee benevolence. They're not outsourced. They are... Leading us, guiding us, ruling over us with respect to that task of mercy. Six, deacons focus on the church. I need to clarify this because the office of deacon has been obscured from generation to generation. Most recently, with the rise of the social gospel, in the late 1800s and early 1900s, Christians began to view deacons as societal do-gooders. They were leading in the charge to change America and to turn America into the eschatological kingdom of God. But that is not what we see in Acts 6, nor from the overall tenor of Scripture. The deacon's primary calling is to address needs that are within the Christian church. Further back in time, there was confusion that arose during the Middle Ages. It persists this day within Roman Catholicism. Deacons were appointed to become liturgical assistants. They were likened to the Levites in the Old Testament, who then served the priests, as the priests offered up sacrifices for sins. And so where was the sphere of activity for the deacons during the medieval church into the current Roman Catholic church? Well, the main sphere of activity was within the worship service. That's not what we see here at all. They're called toward the service of tables. They're called to serve not the Eucharistic table, but to caring for widows who have need in their daily distribution. The main sphere of activity for deacons is not within the liturgy, even though we intend in the future to have a collection and to have deacons um, acting in the liturgy. Their primary sphere of activity is outside the worship of the church to care for the poor, and to mobilize love amongst God's people. When we recover this emphasis of Acts 6 on serving the brethren, the deacons then highlight such an important teaching of Scripture that we are called to exude a special love for our brothers and sisters in the Lord. That could be lost without the diaconate. Your pastor's primary task is to lead you in holy worship in our love for God. The deacons are then appointed to lead us in our love for one another. The elders overseeing both of those two great callings. If we lose that emphasis of the deacon, we lose, threaten to lose, That calling to love our brothers and our sisters, which then leads to the church becoming a theological debating society, a place concerned with ideas, not with love. But James tells us that religion that is pure and undefiled is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Lose the deacon, you might lose that. Further, James tells us that faith without works, it's a dead faith. Lose the deacon, you might lose that as well. The deacons promote true religion and a faith that gets to work. Not leaving us as merely worshiping creatures in the context of liturgy, but creatures that serve one another. Six, deacons focus on the church. Seven, Finally, deacons speak the word. In verse 4, the apostles recognized that Christ was calling them, the apostles, to labor in prayer and in the ministry of the word. This is best understood to refer to public teaching and public praying, leading what we would call worship services. The deacon is not there forbidden from speaking God's word. In fact, the deacon needs to be prepared to speak God's word. We see this in the verses that follow our text. In the very next section of Acts chapter 6, verses 8 and following, we come across Stephen, the very first deacon. He was not leading a worship service, praying publicly, and instructing the brethren, But as he was conducting his diaconal ministry, Christ empowered him to perform signs and wonders that were common during that apostolic era. The Jewish leaders became outraged by this, and they then challenged Stephen within the public courts. Stephen was asked, you could say, for a reason for the hope that was in him. So he made his defense by speaking the word of God with wisdom and the Holy Spirit. Now, Luke joins these two together. The ordination of deacons with Stephen's speaking and defending the gospel to teach us a very important lesson. That even though the deacons are called to lead in the service of tables, the gospel is not... Thereby left behind. Perish the thought. As they bring God's gifts to those who are in need, they also must be prepared to bring God's holy word. They might be questioned by outsiders, and so they would need to give a defense for the reason that they have hope inside them. But they must also be prepared to speak the word of God to the Christian recipients of those gifts of benevolence. Why? In order that the recipients understand that Christ is the source and origin of all diaconal aid. Just as the apostles acted in the name of Jesus, the deacons must clarify as well that they also act in his name. Why is the destitute Christian receiving aid Because Christ has not forgotten them. Why would deacons come to care for one who is lonely? To care for one who is saddened? To care for one who needs practical help? Because Jesus is not distant from the needy Christian. This the Word of God clarifies. The deacon must speak the word. And so, beloved, we have today a sevenfold design for the office of deacon, corresponding with those seven original deacons that were ordained into office. May we today understand more of the heart of our Savior Jesus, that he never abandons us, even when it might feel like that, When we look around our lives and we see misery, sin, frustration, brokenness, poverty, we must never conclude that this is a sign of God's judgments, but rather we look to the deacons and we see a tangible token that Christ has not abandoned us, but indeed He loves us. The good news is for us, even when we are broken, not merely in soul but in our bodies. So let us rejoice today. God is doing something mighty in our midst. Let us rejoice today. God uses humble things in this world to shame the proud. Let us rejoice today that as we commit ourselves to care for one another, we are doing something that led to great growth in the church. May the Lord bring about that growth in our church in the months and years to come. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.